Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 438 of the podcast. It's February 2nd, 2022. It's 2-2-22. That's, uh, that's pretty cool. Thank you for listening. Um, you'll learn more about them in a minute. Our guests today are Kathy Miller and Shannon Carls. They are co-authors of the new book, Steel Toes and Stilettos, A True Story of Women Manufacturing Leaders and Lean Transformation Success. To learn more about them and the book and more, look for links in the show notes, or you can go to leanblog.org slash 438. Thanks for listening. So before I tell you a little bit more about each of them, uh, Kathy, Shannon, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thanks, Mark. I'm glad to be here. Great. Thanks, Mark. So um, Kathy Miller is a senior operations executive who's held numerous global vice president and director roles, both in manufacturing and lean enterprise leadership. Kathy is a Shingo Prize recipient for large businesses as a plant manager. And Kathy started her career in operations as a 17-year-old co-op student at a vehicle assembly plant automotive industry and progressed through engineering, marketing, lean, and operations leadership roles, working for four large publicly traded corporations in executive roles. And Shannon Carrolls is a senior operations manager who's led multiple lean transformations and run operations for two large publicly traded corporations across various industries and business models. She started her career in supply chain management and progressed through lean in operations leadership roles. And as we'll learn about as we talk about the book and the story behind the book, how they worked together. But before we talk about all of that, maybe individually, you know, as I tend to ask guests here on the show, um, to, to hear about how you got started with, with operations and with lean, what was the context for that? Um, Kathy, maybe if you could answer that first. Sure. Well, Mark, my introduction to operations really started because I needed to put myself through college and I was looking for programs where I could do that. I was uh, good at math and science, um, but you know, I loved all the classes. I got a application in the mail from GMI, which is now Kettering University. And um, my dad had heard of it, even though he wasn't in operations and had me apply. And it was such a wonderful program in terms of um, not only financially a great program because you got to work half the year, but also educationally, right? And because you got to work half the year in addition to the academics. So that's how I found my way into operations. And I found myself, again, starting at 17 years old in a vehicle assembly plant had to grow up very fast back in the day in that environment, uh, but I did fall in love with it. I just found it fascinating that a working vehicle came off the end of the line every 60 seconds. Um, and I always tell people, you know, if it's too late to be a rock star. I'd still love to run a vehicle assembly plant because I just <laughs> think they're amazing systems. So um, I, I started there. The plant closed down when I graduated um, and moved into um, supply base, automotive electronics. And there I worked in engineering and marketing, um, back into engineering and some of the advanced systems that we find in vehicles today. Found out I really missed the plant. So after that, I went back into operations and 
got a call one day from my boss's boss to come see him in the office. And he told me that he was putting me on a lean team um, that, you know, everybody was going to have one aspect of the lean system that they were going to apply globally. I, of course, thought I w- the special project was some um, bad statement about my career. You know, <laughs> why was I being sidelined? And here it turned out to be, you know, so pivotal to the rest of my career. So served on that team, got promoted to plant manager. That's where uh, we worked on transforming the operations and the Shingo award uh, came about for my team. Um, And then I just progressed through other uh, vice president roles of um, lean manufacturing and quality and strategy deployment. And I went back and forth between running global operations and supporting global operations uh, with the lean manufacturing operating systems. Well, great. Well, I'll come back maybe with a a couple of follow-up questions um, about your early experiences there, Kathy. Um, but but Shannon, how how about you? Your choice to work in operations and supply chain and your early exposure to lean? Sure. Uh, well, I started out in with a supply chain degree in Western Michigan, um, which was a funny story in itself as I went through all of the curriculum in the business college and started just eliminating everything I didn't want to do. And supply chain had this amazing job placement at the time. So I ended up... Um, pursuing that and actually found out I was pretty good at it and enjoyed it. And then I got recruited right out of college to um, a very large manufacturing firm, which I guess I never really imagined myself doing, but then quickly, quickly enjoyed being in the plant, working with all the people. And I happened to be working for this division that was losing a significant amount of money every month. And they said, Hey, we're going to try this lean thing. And I said, okay, let's, let's do it. So because I was on the supply chain side, I was in charge of material and information flow. And that's how I got introduced to lean. And then going through that transformation, I you know, learned that this is how I really wanted to run businesses. This was the right way for, for me. And then I progressed through other uh, lean leadership roles and then went on to a couple different uh, plant manager roles where I ran those businesses and applied those lean methodologies. And really, um, when I started with a multi-site lean uh, responsibility is when I got really deep into lean and started working with Harris Lean Systems. Mm -hmm. And that's where I got the majority of my lean training and and really changed the trajectory of my career from there. Yeah, I saw the endorsement uh, on the back of the book uh, from Rick Harris. Mm -hmm. And um, Chris Harris has been a guest here on the podcast twice, kind of spread out maybe about a decade apart. It was on your um, a couple of years ago. So um, great coaches. And um, I'm sure you've had a lot of uh, coaches and influences um, through your lean journeys um, individually and um, in these companies. Um, so Kathy, I, I was going to ask, and then maybe Shannon, back to you on this um, similar question. You know, Shannon, you, you'd mentioned the starting point for the company you were at was losing money, business turnaround. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Kathy, thinking back to when you, when you were there um, in the automotive industry, what were the stated motivations for lean? Like, you know, I started at General Motors in the mid nineties. Um, there was talk, not so much for the, the frontline workers, but behind the scenes about catching up the Toyota, like you know, the plant I was in, our performance was bad on both quality and productivity and other 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 measures. What was what was the talk where you were about the reasons for um, really diving into lean? 
Well, at the time um, I was in the same chair, but General Motors had spun off its component divisions. So we were went from being part of General Motors to being a supplier to General Motors. And so that put us in a different situation where we had to really be competitive as not part of the parent organization anymore. So it became the operations strategy and the leadership there was very emphatic about, we are going to do this, we're going to embrace this, and there is no plan B. And uh, they were very pragmatic about making sure that people were educated in it, that uh, people who really showed an aptitude for it, were promoted into leadership positions so they could put systems in place that would sustain themselves. They found other opportunities for people who really didn't buy into it. So it was all about being competitive. And, and Shannon, um, I mean, what, what other detail would you add about sort of the business situation that that, that company was in? Yeah. Besides losing money, I think our, our, our on-time delivery was abysmal. I mean, we're talking like embarrassing levels and quality wasn't great. Productivity was terrible. It was all the things. So um, we really had to do something different. And it was kind of that same concept is the leadership said, this is what we're doing. This is our strategy and built a solid team around it, gave everybody pieces and on we went and learned and tried and Five years later, we were, you know, making 15% ROS at that point. So it was a significant transformation. I think we, on-time delivery went up 50 points. I mean, it was dramatic. Yeah. Improvement. Yeah. And you, you talked about, um, Shannon, this being, you know, the, the right way, the best way to run a business. And what, what, what were some of the aspects of that that appealed most to you, even at that point in your career? Yeah, I think um, a lot of it was, well, for me, I'm a very analytical and all of it was based on math, not opinions. So mm-hmm. as long as you had the math right, there was no debate and, and there was no argument about it. It was like, here's the plan. This is what it says. Let's go. And the team kind of was able to rally around that. The other piece for me was getting to work with all the people, you know, working with the people on the floor to develop tugger routes and put parts in the right place in the market based on what was convenient for them. and and that sort of early on relationship building for me was, was very important. Yeah. So when you talk about math, that's things like um, supply chain math around inventory levels and delivery frequencies and good things like that. Yes. All the fun, all the fun things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, it's kind of, I'll, I'll share these stories some other time over uh, a cup of coffee or a drink, but I'm thinking back to times again, when I was back in the automotive automotive industry where the math would come into conflict with, you could call it fear or politics or habit or, or even like feelings. Oh, I feel like we need more inventory there. Um, that can be tough to navigate sometimes, right? Well, especially when you kept finding parts hidden in drawers and then all of a sudden they would just like magically appear. Oh, we, don't, we ran out of parts. Oh, well, I've got a couple over here I saved. And we would just keep unearthing them throughout the plant because people yeah. were so used to running out. And so they would hide yeah. them. Oh, wow. For that manufacturing rainy day. (laughs) Yep. So it was breaking those paradigms as well when we were trying to put this math in place. Yeah. So maybe a a question um, over to you, Kathy, in in the leadership roles that you've had, um, both in what you might call lean transformation roles and as um, a general manager of a business unit, 
What are some things that you found work well when it comes to changing habits? I mean, it's one thing to teach people new concepts, new methods, but you know, as people would say, old habits die hard. What, what, what are some experiences or tips you would share with the audience about kind of you know, on the level of leading change and developing um, new habits and embrace of what's been taught? Yeah, that's a great question. There's so many things that you have to do, right? Um, the, and in the first plant where I was implementing lean, you had support to the very top of the corporation. So that was great. You know, the fact that they would publicly come out and say there is no plan B, it wasn't just an idea that I had, right? It was a corporate objective and it was tied to getting competitive and, you know, being competitive is how businesses sustain themselves. So there was definitely a compelling case that we could wrap our head around. Um, so, so that was a big deal. And quite honestly, I couldn't waver from that. And I spent a lot of time on the floor, a lot of time with the teams, a lot of times teaching people how to audit and check and double check. Um, Also spent time making sure that the parameters of what was negotiable and what wasn't were set, you know, having some guide rails around that, because it's very important to have people contribute to making things better, the people who do the work. Um, But you have to put some guidelines around that so that your systems have a chance of sustaining themselves. So really making sure we were clear about where we were looking for input and what things weren't negotiable uh, was a big deal. But it took a lot of perseverance, a lot of persistence, a lot of auditing, layered audits, um, until people started to catch on to the fact that you know, maybe this was a better way of doing business, but you could, you could never let up. Right. So we'd put a tugger out in place and I would walk with the tugger out the first day, you know, and as the plant manager, right. There are 1500 hourly people and 500 salary people. And, you know, people would say to me, don't you have anything better to do today? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I would say, no, this is the most important thing. This is the lead off operation in the plant. And I want to make sure that this you know, tugger driver knows that they're supported and, um, you know, find out what problems they have so we can remove roadblocks. So um, it is not, this type of transformation is not for the faint of heart and you have to be very dedicated and you have to show up. You can't just delegate this. It won't work. Yeah. And it seems like there's got to be that compelling business need, like not pursuing lean because it's nice to have or or optional, like there's some level of necessity that's required. Shannon, I, I see you nodding your head. What, what, what yeah. are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And Kathy, what Kathy said is right. You have to paint a, a vision, but there's got to be something behind it, right? So whether that's you go through strategy deployment and transformation planning, where you're aligning to corporate goals, whatever that structure may be, there's got to be something solid behind it that you can rally the troops with versus just Hey guys, I've got this brilliant idea. Follow me. Um, you're absolutely right. So that way you can not only to compel them to want to come, but then to track the progress and say, "Hey, look at how we measure success." So I think that both you need both those things. Yeah. Um, one other thing I want to sort of come back to, um, you know, Shannon, you mentioned um, Harris Lean Systems. 
Um, one other question I like to ask Castor were, you know, who were some of the other key influences or coaches or trainers, or even if the word sensei comes to mind um, from your own lean education and progression? Yeah. Um, well, besides just, you know, the, the books that we just, when we started, we just, I picked up creating level pull and was like, all right, let's figure out how to size some inventory. And by art, I think it was Art Smalley wrote that book and just throw in some combat. So we were, it was just, first it was books and trial and error. And then um, when I started working with Kathy, she had a ton of experience. And in addition to that, she was leading the corporate lean and quality role prior to, and she had lots of friends. So we had all of our corporate people that were, you know, the new, the new lean sensei that was up there was helping us. Mark Deluzio was a big help with, um, for Kathy and I in that process. And so it's just all these names that come together. And, and to be honest, I learned a lot from our team, um, just from trying things. Mm. And there were things that we would like be sitting in a room around the floor and, and trying to hash out how to, you know, flow through this shared resource. And, and the team would have this like brilliant idea. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I never even thought about that. I never read that in a book. This is amazing. Let's try it. So it's hard to pinpoint one person besides, besides that power of trial and error. Yeah. And Mark Deluzio, also a former guest on the podcast here, but you raise a really interesting point of, you know, the, the, we have the opportunity to learn from other companies. We can learn from people who have done things at other companies. And you've been in that position of being now the person who did things at other companies. And let me tell you about our experiences versus experimenting or trying things based on principles or maybe even developing your own principles. That's a really important uh, thing to think about. Me, How do you find that balance or get inputs um, all around? Absolutely, um, Kathy. What, what? What? Who are some of your um, coaches and, and influences that made a big impact? So again, Harris Lean Systems, where Harris and I have been transforming plants for almost two decades now. I was going back and and looking at the dates. So you know, I've worked very closely uh, with Rick and and more recently with Chris, uh, but Mark Deluzio taught me a lot about strategy deployment. And, you know, I had the opportunity to teach others about that. John Shook, Jim Womack, um, Mr. Yamada, you know, all kinds of uh, the people who wrote the books, the early books, you know, uh, we were so lucky to get to learn from them. So, you know, I've been really aligned with, you know, lean.org and LEI, read a lot of books, um, you know, I love Toyota Field Book and Gemba Kaizen. And, you know, a lot of it, um, you have to learn by doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can have both, you know, uh, insights and experiences of others and our own experiments and, and learning. Um, Kathy, question for you, uh, you know, back to this idea of you're coming into a company um, from the outside. You have experiences and things that you've done and things that worked where you were previously, um, what, what are some kind of reflections that come to mind on navigating that as being a new outsider to the company, being just from the outside or the first time you worked in um, something that wasn't as automotive focused? Mm -hmm. What were some things that come to mind? Well, I would say this, nobody wants to hear about, well, this is how we did it at XYZ. 
learned that the first time I changed companies. <laughs> so, you know, I never did that ag- again when I went to the other two companies. Um, I think the issue is really, um, you know, establishing credibility with the people who have to implement. So, you know, when I became in charge of lean and quality for the whole company, I had to go out and establish what I call street creds with the people who were now doing the role I had just left. And a lot of that was about rolling my sleeves up and doing it. And I will tell you that um, in that particular role where I became the vice president of lean and quality, I established really good relationships with, you know, the general managers because I didn't tell them what to do. I understood what some of their challenges were because I was a plant manager who had implemented before. I wasn't just quote unquote book smart, you know, people don't like, you know, people coming in and, you know, from corporate and telling them what to do. So I think the main thing is just to be able to assess the situation you're going into appreciate where people are coming from, especially people who haven't had the benefit that you've had of experiencing the benefits of it and be able, being able to acknowledge their challenges and help them get to that next level where um, they're starting to see results and mm-hmm. it gains traction. Yeah. Um, Shannon, what, what are some, some of your experiences as somebody who's switched companies or moved into different fields? Yeah. And I think for me, mine was more around the, I went from a combination of, you know, low volume, high mix to high volume, high mix. And then I went, the last company I ran was low, like lowest volume. Like we sell seven pieces a year type of low volume. So it was taking the things I'd learned in listening, like I had to learn so much about their business in order to try to apply what I learned in totally different business models to that business model. And for me, it was all about like, you know, like Kathy said, street cred, watching them run the machines, watching them assemble these, these parts and, and understanding their issues and what was driving problems into my PL. And so I think that was for me the more difficult part and and really the tools I use was just to try to learn and then apply what I learned. And there were times I still couldn't figure it out. (laughs) So of course I'd get my team together and be like, how do we fix this? Or I'd call up Rick and be like, here's the thing I've got. What do you suggest I do (laughs) about this? I want to do this, but I don't know how. And then we would talk through it. So again, it's, it's going back to just that trial and error piece of it. It's not a one plug fits all type of a experience. That's for sure. So with the book, and again, the title is um, Steel Toes and Stilettos. And, you know, the the, the story and, and, and the focus in the book is, you know, being women in um, what has traditionally been a very male dominated industry. I haven't worked in manufacturing for over 15 years. That's that's still generally a true statement today. It's, it's been, how would you describe like sort of that evolution of you know, more women, um, you know, coming through passive engineering or other disciplines and coming into manufacturing? How, how has that been evolving? Well, I think that, you know, there's been a lot of emphasis in the world on diversity and inclusion and uh, women in STEM. There's a lot of organizations now who support that. So I do think the funnel is starting to be filled. 
you know, at the early stages with more, but there's still very few, at least in my experience of uh, women making it to the senior executive ranks in the operations function. So um, there's a lot of catch up that still needs to be there. Uh, And, you know, Shannon and I always talk about when we were growing up in this, there weren't a lot of female role models in this function. So we were um, paving, paving the way, I think. And our message in the book is it's okay, right? You can be yourself. You don't have to conform to stereotypes of a gender to be successful. Yeah. Shannon, what are some of your experiences and what you've seen through your career? Yeah, I I would echo what Kathy said. Um, Some of my experiences too, is if there were women, and I'm not saying this as a blanket statement, but just in some of my experience, if there were women that have reached that level in some cases, um, they, their husbands did not work. And so it was a very different experience for, for me, especially working with Kathy to be able to understand what that was like with a dual career marriage and then adding children on top of that. It was definitely different. And there weren't a ton of role models, as Kathy said, for what we've experienced. I, I do think now Kathy is absolutely right. The funnel's filling. And I think that we are in a position to have more of those role models for that next generation. But we will always say you need to put the best person in for the job, regardless of age, gender, that sort of thing. That's, you know, always been um, my motto. I know that Shannon feels the same way. I know that, um, you know, through the years, when I think about it and step back and think about it, I had some pretty diverse teams, but I think it was because um I had really good candidate pools because people wanted to be part of inclusive teams where everybody didn't look and think the same way, you know? And so that allowed me, you know, to pick the best people regardless of, um, you know, their gender or any other category that you'd see on these uh, diversity pie charts that get thrown up all the time in HR meetings. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but but now as you've been through this path, and I know you know part of the story in the book, it sounds like is you know your working relationship, um, the two of you, Kathy and Shannon, and 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 this book is maybe, you know a step toward providing um, even from afar mentorship to other women who may be starting their careers or earlier in their careers in manufacturing. Is that how, how much of that was a driver? for writing the book as opposed to the lean transformation story that's also, of course, contained in the book? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we really started with who are we writing this for? And and we did start off with that young girl who wants to get into maybe manufacturing or STEM of any kind, and that we want to be role models for them. We would like to be, to show them that you can have the proverbial all, I suppose, um, it just takes a lot of balance. And quite frankly, it takes a good support system to be able to do it too. And Kathy and I found that in each other and still find that in each other as we've gone through all these um, different careers and life changes together. Yeah. And Mark, you're, you're spot on, right? You can read this book two ways. There definitely is a roadmap in terms of an order in which we implemented the tools and systems. And sometimes it was one step forward, two steps back, right? To make things uh, sure things got sustained. So it definitely can be read that way, regardless, right. Of 
gender or what function you're in, because you can use a lot of these tools outside of a factory too, and other kinds of businesses. Um, but just a long parallel path with that is, you know, women in STEM and women in leadership. And it's okay to be authentic and do you, you know, you can still get really great results. Mm-hmm. I mean, is, it seems like maybe there's a parallel when we think of trying to be successful as a company through lean or as a healthcare organization. We, we, it's natural to try to learn from others who've gone before you and to emulate others versus finding your own path as, as, as you've touched on here with your own experiments and finding your own way with lean. Is there a similar dynamic of um, you know, navigating uh, you know, a manufacturing operations environment um, as, as a woman? I think there's, yes, I mean, it's different, right? It, it just is. And that's okay. It just is. And so Kathy and I talk a little bit about some of the challenges we face as women. Um, we, interestingly enough, never really talked about it when we were going through this process. We just were there to do the hard work. Uh-huh. And, mm-hmm. you know, there were times when her and I did not get along <laughs> and did not mm-hmm. necessarily agree on something. Yeah. But what we found was we handled it mostly constructively. And then, you know, the next day we were, we were great. We were good. We were there for the greater good. Right. So it's, it's, it definitely makes a difference, I think. And you get comments that maybe aren't necessarily appropriate and you just learn to kind of deal with them. And and I think in this day and age, it's starting to be a little more recognized as maybe being a little inappropriate. Um, but we just kind of took it as, hey, you know what? You can't bring us down. We're going to get this done. And we just powered through it. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, more of our reflections about being women in STEM are, are, are retroactive now, right? So when we're in the moment, I would rarely think about the fact that I was the only woman in the room. Uh, you know, for most of my career, I was the youngest and only female on every staff till, you know, um, the last 10 years or so. Um, unless there was someone in HR or finance, right? So, but I just never thought about it unless somebody made a comment to me about it and made it an issue, you know? Uh, so I think that's that's the difference. People uh, make a lot of, I think, well-meaning comments that make you feel like, oh yeah, I guess I am the only woman in the room, you know, or I'm the youngest in the room or wh- whatever the case may be. Um, but I never felt like that was a reflection on why I was in the room. You know, I always felt like I had earned my seat at the table. I had amazing mentors um, and bosses who gave me opportunities probably before most traditionally would have and believed in me and, and instilled that confidence in me. So like I said, the gender thing really wasn't for foremost in my mind unless someone brought it up, you know, and then I would generally slough off something about, you know, the advantages of small lines at the bathroom during meeting breaks, you know, what are you going to do? The only place in life where, you know, that's an advantage. So, you know, things like that. Mm, We didn't make it like a big contentious issue. Yeah. Yeah. But there's, there's a different layer of um, navigating the work life um, that, that I won't ever have to face and, and thinking of, you know, I can think of myself as an engineer or a consultant or a podcaster. 
And there's not that layer of also being pointed out as being, you know, somewhat rare or unique. Like, oh, well, she's a woman executive. And you can say, well, why, why not just executive? Correct. Or there's, yeah. you know, it being um, one of a few in that role or, you know, um, Sometimes this comes up, you know, regarding race. Um, if somebody feels like, well, now they're in a position of having to represent everybody, where mm-hmm. a pressure of, um, you know, comes from being different and being in a high-profile high yeah. position. But what I hear you saying is, you know, you you are focused on as much as you can, you know, the work, the transformation, the business. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, there was one company that I worked at that was those comments were so pervasive, right. About being the only female ops person or, and um, it, it did tend because it was so pervasive to put a different level of pressure, like, you know, Oh my gosh, if my performance is going to make or break, you know, women in operations for the rest of eternity, but you you, you can't allow that, that to get to you. That's their issue, not your issue, right. You're at the table because of your contributions and what you have to bring. So um that part can be challenging, you know, and I just got to the point where I would, again, use what I thought was funny humor to try and deflect some of it. Like, you know what? Hey, I'm not a unicorn. I'm just a person here to do a job. you know. <laughs> right. So. Right. so sometimes other people put that focus on you or what, what I hear you saying, am I hearing you right? That sometimes people would make comments they thought were supportive, but were mm-hmm. inadvertently just deaf. Yeah. Better yeah, like I'll, like I'll give you an example. There was a new executive at one company I was with and um, I was help hosting him, you know, through the day um, at various plant visits and, and meetings and whatnot. And um, the moment that the meeting, the people from the meeting left, the first thing he said to me was, wow, not a very diverse crowd around here, is there? And so I'm sure he was well, I'm not a mind reader. I don't know what he was thinking, but I had to say in my mind, huh, if Joe were the person who were, you know, (laughs) escorting you around and, you know, being your host, would that have been the very first comment you would have said when people left the room? So that's just an example. Yeah. And, And I have a similar one where I met an executive and they're like, oh, you know, this is Shannon. She's, she's the plant manager here, blah, blah, blah. And they shook my hand and said, oh, wow, good for you. And I was like, (laughs) oh, thank you. I mean, yes, good for me. (laughs) But like, yeah. So it's just those types of things that you just kind of, you know. What are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. You do your best to shrug it off, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And get back to the business at hand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that business at hand, um, you know, lean transformation, um, you know, talking about two roles that work really closely together, it seems, in different organizations. The general manager, you know, the business unit head, the plant manager, whatever mm-hmm. level of the organization, somebody with the broader business PL responsibility. And then you have somebody maybe you could label as the lean facilitator or the lean specialist. Um, how how do, what do you recommend in terms of finding the right fit um, roles and responsibilities of, of those roles in a lean transformation? This is a great question because we've got, we've got, well, Kathy and I have stories for everything, but <laughs> this There's is a, a whole fun book story. About it. It's a whole like, book. Give, <laughs> right. Um, 
and Kathy tells the story in the book. And um, so I won't, I won't steal it, but, and I want you to, I want you to chime in Kath, but like, I, um, you know, I was a supply chain major. I worked in supply chain for eight years before I started in lean. Um, and I just happened to be good at analytics and communication and, and some of the key things that were, you know, helped in that role. And so I think it's, at least from my perspective, when I've hired other lean people, I'm looking for a good project manager, someone who can be confident when they're coaching at any level in the organization, because lean obviously goes everywhere. Um, and I look for somebody who can be, hold others accountable and has that confidence to do that. And that can learn, right? Cause you know, one thing that Rick always taught us is like, you can't teach somebody who already knows everything. So, and I certainly wasn't that person. And so I always look for somebody who was interested in learning at the same time as teaching. So I don't, it's hard for me to say there's a prescriptive type of a person to look for. And in fact, one of our best lean engineers was a math major and never really worked in a plant before. And he was, he was amazing at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, you know, Mark, I believe I heard on one of your earlier podcasts, you're an industrial engineering major too, right? Yeah. So I am too. So I think industrial engineers make the best lean people in the world, but let's face it. <laughs> there's not, you know, there's not armies of us out there. Um, what I look for in a lean person um, as, as my lean um, expert, right. On my staff is first of all, somebody who is promotable and or wants to go back and lead a function, you know, that sort of thing. Because I think that people who rotate in and out of those positions really help an enterprise become lean, right? So if you have somebody who wants to just do lean the whole rest of their lives, I I don't see how that gets um, put into the organization, right? Systemically. So I want people who are, you know, high potential um, high energy, the ability to learn and teach. And, uh, quite honestly, I want people who have strengths that I don't have. Yeah. Right. So I'm a strategic running the business, you know, balancing all the plates. I want someone who I can give a vision to and they can figure out the details, you know, and go get it done. So, you know, I think it's really important. I think one of the issues with the diversity and inclusion, quite honestly, is that diversity of thought. And if we just bring people on our teams who are like us, we're not going to get the best results. So, um, and, and I loved, love, love, loved when Shannon came on the team from a material and information flow standpoint, if you don't get those right, you, you know, you can't truly do lean. But after she got um, promoted to a plant manager position, the next person I had was a person who was very good at analytics and had done the pricing function, right? But that person was another person who I saw could do analytics and get things done and move mountains and people. So, um, and then she, you know, spun off and, and did other things as well. So that's what I look for, you know, and I do. I don't think everybody has to have an engineering degree to be a good yeah. lean leader. I, I have experienced that in many different settings. So yeah, I have a bias towards industrial engineers, 
But you know, I think of somebody in the last manufacturing company I worked with. Uh, he came from HR, so he was a bit of a, a minority of being a, a man in HR. Um, I learned a ton from him as I was trying to get better at coaching and leading and developing other people. And he was doing a great job with um, lean practices within the HR function to solve, you know, meaningful business problems for him. And as I've been in healthcare, you know, partner up an uh, industrial engineer and a nurse or, you know, different backgrounds like that, you, you can learn a lot from each other and get a lot done. But, um, you know, as a follow-up, Kathy and maybe Shannon, you have thoughts on this too. What I I hear describing that lean expert, that lean facilitator role as being a developmental role of like somebody who was an area manager, then they may be going to that lean role and then they might step back out after a couple of years into a larger, more direct line leadership role. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think that's the best model. If you're looking at a whole company, I think it's good to have a core team of lean experts of people who are that book smart, right? Who want to write the training, who get all the calculations, can be called in for the hard problem solving things. But I think 80% of your team needs to be rotational, right? So people can get in. They can get immersed in it and understand it so that then they can go out and apply their thinking within their functions and their operations. But having a core team of people who that's their favorite thing to do isn't bad, but I usually like to keep that amount to, you know, use the 80-20 rule and keep those people in about the 20%. Because you need people who can develop those street creds with people going, yeah, I made 10,000 parts a day. And converted everything, you know, to a lean system. So that's my thoughts on it. That's worked well for me. That's how I was brought up. And that model always worked for me. Yeah. One one other um, question for for you, Kathy, is, you know, thinking through, and and Shannon, you know, maps this to you too as well. Um, what, What are things, I think you said something earlier, Kathy, which is why I thought of you first, of the things that cannot be delegated. So when it yeah. comes to to let's say lean transformation or business transformation, what what are some of those things that the general manager cannot or should not delegate? Um, so the layered audit process, I think a general manager, plant manager, has to be out there and see the things for themselves. You know, I I really do. You know, go to those the big plant daily meetings, you can't be in every single detail and still do the strategy pieces of it. Right. But you have to be seen. You can't just say, you know what, I don't care about that. You know, go do that. Come back and tell me when it's done, you know, and, um, and certain types of problem solving also, particularly in the industrial, uh, world, I feel that if you're going to have respect for people, you have to provide both physically and psychologically safe environments So if we had a safety accident, I was always personally involved with reviewing the corrective action at the site of the accident and bringing my whole staff along, even the marketing people and and the other people, because um, everybody deserves to go to work safe and get home safely. So that's another thing that cannot be delegated. Great point. Um, Shannon, what's your view on, you know, things that the general manager cannot or should not delegate? Yeah. And my, my views don't differ much from Kathy's. I mean, especially in the beginning of a transformation, you have to be present to show that you're serious about this happening. And 
And quite honestly, you have to know what's going on in the beginning because you're developing a team. You may hear different things and you need to be able to see and have that, again, that credibility that you know what's going on in your facility um, and with your team members. And I also found in the beginning of, of this whole process is you start to, it's important to be there so you can see how your team interacts. So is there, you know, somebody who's dominating and everybody else is just listening or is everybody getting, you know, to be able to participate? It's, it's a lot of that. And you want to drive more conversation through questions versus telling everybody what to do. So I think that it's just piggybacking on what Kathy said is those are the things you you need to be present for those until, in my opinion, as you progress through the transformation, eventually it's not just one lean person who's driving it or the plant manager or general manager, the whole team's thinking that way. So then you can kind of step back a little bit and say, hey, I've got confidence in you guys to solve this problem without me being you know, attached to you anymore. And the business starts to grow that way where you can start to look more on you know, customer relationships and growth and things that pull you in different directions versus just the operation. And you mentioned safety. And one thing I wanted to ask about, there's um, a section in the book that talks about, um, you know, passion for safety. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we're, we're, we're in agreement, maybe with the audience we're preaching to the choir about the importance of um, safety as a precondition, um, focusing on, on that. Um, Toyota pr- uh, preaches that and um, people I've worked with who've come out of there really emphasize that through action. It's not just preaching, of course, but um, you know, sometimes we're, we're trying to help move others along who might agree on some level, sure, safety is important, but, but what, what makes it a passion for safety? Where, where, where did that come from for each of you? Well, you know, the first plants that I um, work with had UAW workforces, um, and and I've had UAW workforces and union workforces on, on and off through my career. And the one thing that I always thought was so powerful very early in my career was there was never a debate about quality or safety being important. And so, well, you could have negotiations about wage rates and shop rules and those sorts of things, I found that it was one area of of, um, common ground, right? Of a passion that we all felt like we had to protect our people and our products. So, you know, there's something about some of your early lessons learned. And also, um, you know, through the years, I've witnessed um, some pretty serious accidents and heard about them. And, um, you know, and in one case I was part of, uh, handling a fatality that happened somewhere. And, you know, I had to clean out, um, the locker of the employee with his boss when that person, you know, didn't go home. And that's the absolute worst case scenario. It, it wasn't in my unit, but I was a member of the company handling it because I was literally close to it and it was life-changing. And, you know, I never wanted anyone to get hurt on my watch. I was, you know, it just, I never questioned that. It was just so basic in terms of if you love and respect people, um, then you have to provide safe environments for them, you know, and it's not, it's not negotiable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, 
I agree um, with everything Kathy said. And, and unfortunately, when you experience a serious accident, it it changes your perspective on any uh, on the whole entire thing. Now, my passion for safety came in well before I had to experience a very severe accident um, that was in my plant that I had been running for three weeks, and um, it was it was awful, absolutely awful. And prior to that, and then from that point forward, you know when we're driving these lean transformations and we talk about respect for people, we're getting to know these people on a personal level. And that was important to me. And that was something that Kathy really taught me was let's stop talking about it. Like, Oh, you're not wearing your safety glasses. Let's start talking about it as a cultural thing. Like, Hey, you know, I know you're coaching your son's baseball game um, this week. I want you to be able to see him hit the ball. So can you please wear your glasses? But it became more, personal because we were knowing each other outside of our job functions. We were knowing each other as people. And so that's how it became so important to me. And then unfortunately, when I had that serious accident in my facility, only being three weeks there, um, my dedication to safety and what showed that team from that point on was a non-negotiable item. And so it brought all of us together in an unfortunate way, but it brought us all together to start to look out for each other, not necessarily just a trip hazard on the floor. Well, thank you for sharing um, those stories and those, you know, those reflections that remind us why you know, this is so important. This is not just um, data points on a chart about lost workday cases or uh, what have you. This is this is people and their well-being and, and their lives. Um, so again, we're we're talking today. Before we wrap up, uh, again, we're joined um, Sharon Carls and Kathy Miller, authors of the book Steel Toes and stilettos. And there's a clever um, construct to each of the chapters um, sort of themed around a different type of shoe, not just those two, um, mm-hmm. tap shoes and rain boots and cowboy boots um, or cowgirl boots. <laughs> um, in, Whatever fits your feet, works. In, in, this, <laughs> in this case. But um, you, you t- one, one of the last things I wanted to ask you about was um, the environment where the stilettos might be more likely worn, um, the office or what some people call carpet land. Um, mm-hmm. I'm cu- curious here a little bit uh, if you can touch on um, some of your experiences or lessons that come from, um, again, this is different, you know, um, sort of like coming from the automotive industry to a different industry or from one company to mm-hmm. another. Coming from the shop floor into the office can be mm-hmm. quite uh, a leap. It's a different environment, but I think we would agree lean would apply. What would your some of your experiences or, or lessons learned there? Well, if you're in a factory environment and you're truly going to be a lean organization, it doesn't take very long before you realize that some of those functions being performed on the carpet are essential to your well-being. So you're going to get, <laughs> you know, when you've got three weeks to produce a part and the first two weeks are creating a part number and getting it in the system and you've only got a week to get it through all your processes, you know, you get there pretty, pretty darn quickly. But um, even outside of a manufacturing environment, right, um, some of the experiences are um, people really value their creativity. Um, and so uh, there's an initial uh, urge to resist, you know, to feel like some of the processes really inhibit creativity. And uh, we also found that, you know, we're in manufacturing, you're measured every which way to Sunday, people in the office are not measured, typically, you know, um, as often and as much. So 
um, there's a few challenges with um, getting open minds and again, setting those guide rails of, you know what, you are an engineer and you are creative and you know what, I want you uh, developing this compound or designing this part, spending your creativity there, not on creating a new filing system every time you put a drawing in place, right? So when you start to find things that um, people can find value and measure that are meaningful, it starts to come together. But that's definitely a difference between a factory and the office because, you know, uh, factories are used to being measured on on every single thing and everything's visual in general, right? Yeah. So those are some of the things, but there's so much opportunity in uh, non-factory work. And when you start, it just becomes astonishing. And once people get the taste of it, yeah, it generally does take a life of its own and, and, and can accelerate. Yeah. And we, um, Kathy and I found some unique ways to, to motivate people into doing things like Office 5S, which is a lot different than doing it on the floor. And we would motivate them differently and amp up our energy way higher than we normally would. Um, and then, you know, a lot of times we started with just basic problem solving in the office. So tackling a problem people were genuinely having. And then from there we said, okay, well, if this is one problem and one teeny little thing we can fix, what if we map the whole thing and imagine what this amazing team could solve? (laughs) So it does require a little finesse. And then it also requires a lot of conversations with people and listening to their issues and then, and then talking about, okay, well, what, what can we do and getting their input versus Hey, here's this really cool tool we can use. We're going to do this. We're going to put an operator balance charts on the floor. Um, it does require a little more discussion and finesse. And and I would say this applies in factories as well as on the carpeting or other industries. Um, you have to make a safe environment to have a more productive environment, not just the physical safety we're talking about. But if you're getting more productive and, you know, 20% and then you lay off 20% of the people, that's going to kill the initiative right there. You've got to have an agreed upon plan of, look, we're going to enter purchase orders 20% more efficient. And you know what? We're going to deploy people to accounts to get more sales so we can grow and, and articulate a great future because otherwise people re- will resist it either openly or, um, not so openly. And, you know, um, I think that's really key. That's really key because there's so much productivity to be, to be had, but you want it being invested into the business. I mean, would would you say maybe there's a a final, final question here. Um, I'm guilty of asking multiple final questions sometimes, but (laughs) what, what, what you say keeps prompting other ideas. The the um, the open questioning um, or challenging of things. Um, do you do you find that easier to deal with than sort of that subtle under underground resistance? If that's oh, the right, yeah. if that's 100%. even the right word to use. Yes, a hundred percent. You know, hey, we grew up in and around operations, so we're comfortable with conflict as long <laughs> as it's constructive and not personal or you know taken over the line. I would much rather have a person argue with me about why I changed something or why something was moved or why this is the dumbest idea ever. Cause then at least I know what I'm dealing with now. I may or may not be able to change their mind, but nothing is worse than sitting in a meeting. And everybody's like, yes, Kathy go raw. 
And, you know, you go out and they've done the opposite or haven't, you know, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I'd much rather have passionate people confronting me than the, uh, what do they call that? A pocket veto. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or that, that passive aggressive, I'm nodding. Yes, but I'm saying, I'm thinking no. Yeah, when we when we would start projects, problem solving, anything, we would one of one of the ground rules I always put in place was no silent disagreement. Like let's we've got a safe space, let's hash it out, and everybody's got to walk out. Now you don't have to necessarily agree. You're, you don't have to be exci- super excited, but you can't be a blocker. You got to go with it, and you can't be talking you know bad about what we're going to do because it just spreads that negativity throughout the business. Yeah, and as you've been saying, and and Kathy, you meant you brought up um, psychological safety earlier. Um, you know, creating that environment where, uh, or inheriting an environment where people were already comfortable speaking up and not stifling that is key. Like you said, hashing it out, uh, Mm -hmm. working through it better to um, hear the complaint than to have that become the passive aggressive undermining of, uh, of something. So lessons um, well-learned and hard fought (laughs) challenges along the way. For sure. But I'm glad you. Um, I'm glad you both could um, share not just your personal stories and, and story working together, but um, you know the story around lean transformation that's captured here in the book. So um, again, um, off the the book is titled "Steel Toes and Stilettos: A True Story of Women Manufacturing Leaders and Lean Transformation Success." Um, Shannon Carls and Kathy Miller, and I'll tell you in my household as you talked about earlier, being able to read this book from different perspectives. Uh, my wife, who's uh, a woman manufacturing leader, is reading the book and may, we, we might have to be, I think we can share it. I mean, we, we, we could buy our own copies. That, that would be <laughs> good for you as authors, but either way, people uh, read it. There are different, um, a lot of different lessons um, to draw out of the book. So I hope people will check that out. It is available now. And um, Shannon and Kathy's website again is opsisters.com, opsisters.com. We'll have that in the show notes. Um, so Kathy and Shannon, um, thank you so much. I think, you know, we, we scratched the surface of all um, the wisdom and the stories that are in the book. So thank you for sharing a little bit and having a great conversation. And I hope people will go buy the book. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate your time, Mark. Thanks so much. Well, thanks again to Kathy and Shannon for being my guests today. To learn more about them and their books, again, please look in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 438. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.